From KUER News in Salt Lake City, this is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. When you hear the Fox News personality Bill O'Reilly rail about a secular war on Christmas or lately Easter, Professor Candida Moss says you're hearing just the latest in an ancient premise that Christians are at odds with the world. Moss has written a book that explores this idea that the faith was forged and tested by the early Christians who died for their beliefs. She says martyrdom continues to matter for Christians, and it's an integral part of how they talk about their history and themselves. The professor knows there were Christians who were killed for their beliefs, but she says the foundations for the story are imaginary, designed, she says, to marginalize the heretics and inspire the faithful. Her book is called The Persecution Myth. We'll talk about it after the news. Hi, this is Elaine Clark, one of the producers of Radio West. Our free podcasts are made possible by KUER's generous listeners. If you're a fan, we hope you'll consider joining them. Become a sustaining member of KUER for as little as $5 a month. Visit us online at KUER.org for details. Thank you. This is Radio West and Doug Fabrizio. When you hear someone like Bill O'Reilly or others talk about uh, war on Christmas, Professor Candida Moss says really what you're hearing is just the latest in a very ancient, very old idea that Christians are at odds with the world. Professor Moss has written a book that explores this idea that the Christian faith was forged and tested by those who died for their beliefs, by martyrs. And this idea continues to matter, she says, to Christians. She knows there were Christians who were killed for their beliefs, but the foundations of that story, she says, the foundations are imaginary, designed to marginalize the heretics, inspire the faithful. Her book is called The Myth of Persecution, How Early Christians Invented a Story of Martyrdom, and she's joining us today to talk about it. We invite you to join the conversation. 801-585-WEST is the number, 801-585-9378. Our email address, radiowest at KUER.org. Candida Moss is a professor of New Testament and early Christianity at the University of Notre Dame. The uh, myth of persecution is coming out in paperback uh, this month. And she's joining us today from a studio on the campus of Notre Dame in Indiana. And uh, Professor, welcome. Thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure to be here, Doug. Thanks for having me. I want to begin with a story you tell uh, in the book, uh, this is spring of 2011, um, and you were attending a mass with a colleague of yours, um, and you heard this homily that I, th- I guess in some ways is, the, is what really got you thinking about this, uh, this idea for the book. Tell that story. Yeah, so I was at this mass. Catholics go to daily mass sometimes, and I didn't know this, but it turned out to be a pro-life mass. And the homily of the day was about how um, supporters of the pro-life movement, Catholics or Christians in general, who were concerned about abortion and contraception in general, how they were like the apostles and the martyrs in the early church, and how just like the apostles resisted the Romans and resisted persecution. Today, Christians were called to sort of resist the government and that in being pro-life, we were just like the apostles and the martyrs. And I remember turning to my friend who was a historian and sort of making a face and thinking, well, I don't feel that persecuted here in America. And this seemed to me a very strange rhetorical move on the part of the priest, that the priest thought that Christians today who hold a particular political position were just like the apostles and martyrs who struggled in the early church. And it was especially strange to me because I'm an early Christian historian. Mm -hmm. And so I know that while as you said, some Christians did die for their beliefs, that those stories are wildly exaggerated. And so that uh, event started me thinking about how Christians use this persecution language to support the things that they're doing today. And I started to wonder whether or not this was really a good thing. You, um, This reminded you, you say, of something you overheard uh, a few years even before that, of these two undergraduates who were talking about this case of a nine-year-old girl in Brazil. Um, And it seemed really, um, you seemed really troubled by this story. 
Yeah, I was. Um, there was this case in Brazil of this nine-year-old girl. It's a terrible case. She was um, sexually abused by her stepfather, and she became pregnant with twins. Now, in Brazil, as a Catholic country, abortion is not widely available, but her mother was able to get her an abortion because as a nine-year-old girl, when you think how little nine-year-old girls are, um, she couldn't possibly carry two infants to term, and she was deeply traumatized. So she secured um, an abortion for her child, and somehow... The story hit the media, and the girl's mother and her doctor were both excommunicated um, by the bishop. And it's a horrible case. There is no happy ending in this story. And I was walking on campus behind two young female undergraduates. Maybe they were 18, 19 years old. And they're talking about this case. And For Catholics, this is a very troublesome situation, but what struck me was the tone of the way they were talking about it. They were saying that they should have made this girl carry to term and how how she could have been a martyr if she died. And what really struck me was one of the girls said that she couldn't feel sorry um, in this case because murder was so much worse than rape. And... I was really struck by this because it seemed to me that this is a case in which there's no happy ending and there are multiple victims. However you feel about um, abortion, you have to bear in mind that this is just a terrible case and it's not going to have a happy ending. And I was struck that she couldn't feel sorry for this girl. It was sort of us versus them. And if she does the wrong thing, I no longer have sympathy for her. And the insistence of these young women that she should have embraced death and been a martyr, this struck me of the kind of polarized position that we've come to and how the understanding that Christians are under attack can lead us to sort of no longer show empathy uh, for other people when we disagree with them. And that was a very troublesome encounter for me that um, these young women couldn't have been sympathetic towards this very young girl who had been horribly traumatized. You know, it's interesting. You you say that... um and we'll talk about this as we go along, that there have been, you know, lots of religions have their own martyrs. It's not unique to Christianity, as you say in the book. But there is some sense among Christians that, that it is, that that before Christianity, for some reason, you didn't see people who were willing to die for their religious principles, this idea that Christians kind of invented the idea. Yeah, and I, I should say I am one of those people who's really drawn to martyrdom stories myself. I do find them tremendously inspiring. And there is something about a person's faith when they're willing to die for what they believe. That's truly inspiring. And like a lot of Christians, I grew up thinking that this was something Christianity invented. I heard about the martyrs in Sunday school and in church, and I thought that Christianity must be true because people were willing to die for it, and only only Christians had martyrs. But then um, once I went to college and then to graduate school, I started to learn that prior to Christianity, there were in fact martyrs from other religious groups and from philosophical schools. Mm -hmm. So um, we have all of these examples of people laying down their lives for their country, for their city, um, not so much for their God, although we have those examples in Judaism, but for their families and for sort of the greater good or sometimes just for virtue because it was the right thing to do. And um, I began to realize that many early Christian stories of martyrs were actually modeled on these ancient examples. So uh, the story of a martyr named Polycarp, who was one of the first Christian bishops to die, is modeled on the story of the death of Socrates, the famous philosopher. Go ahead. I I, want to break that story down, actually, because I think Mm – let's back up just a moment to this idea that – of a good death, a, a noble death, because it goes back quite far. And you explain in the book that our, our first known characterization, whatever you call it, martyrdom is the term that we sort of have, have come to know now. But before there was that same kind of idea, um, our first characterization of it went back to Homer's Iliad. Talk a little bit about that because we start to see this theme. 
Yeah, it's interesting. For as long as we have literature in the Western world, we have this idea of a good death. And this can seem a little counterintuitive to us, but in the ancient world where people died so easily, um, people lost their children frequently, people had to think about what does it mean to die well? And so what we find in the Iliad is people are at war. It's the story of the Trojan War. And we have people dying all the time in this story. It's a story about war. (laughs) And we have, for example, say the story of Achilles. Achilles is given a choice. He can go home, live a long life and be a farmer, or he can die valiantly on the battlefield. And he chooses to die valiantly on the battlefield for the Greeks. We also have the story of Achilles talking to one of the Trojan princes. So Achilles is on this rampage after his friend Patroclus has been killed by the Trojans. He goes on a rampage and he's killing people right and left. And he ends up in this one sort of duel, you might call it, with this Trojan prince. And the prince is defeated and he grabs Achilles' legs and he begs him for his life. And he basically says, you know, I'm a Trojan prince. My father will pay you a lot of money if you sell me back to him uh, as a hostage. And Achilles looks down at him and sneers and he says, you know, you need to man up. Death comes to everyone. You need to be a man and take it like a man. And stop being so piteous about it. And clearly Achilles is horrified by this example of someone begging for his life because really the important thing from Homer onwards is that you embrace your death fearlessly and with courage. And that's what it means to die a good death, Mm. to die for something bigger than yourself, better than yourself, and to die with self-control and composure. You know, it's not the idea that we think of today is that that immortality is that we – die and, you know, come back in some kind of heaven. But for the ancients, or many of the ancients anyway, that's not how they were seeing it. Immortality for someone like Achilles, for example, is not an afterlife, but as you put it in the book, eternal renown. Coming back, as you say, alive in the memories of others. That was immortality. Yeah, that's exactly right. In the ancient world, people were really concerned about being forgotten. And it's almost impossible for us to think about this because between Facebook and Twitter and the internet, we keep such good records. But the, in the ancient world where so, peop- so few people can write and paper is so scarce, you, you were only really remembered in the memories of your family unless you were a hero. And so what Achilles chooses is immortality in the minds of his fellow Greeks. He dies gloriously so that he will be eternally remembered. And that was afterlife, to be remembered forever. And the thing about Achilles is it worked. He has been remembered. So uh, this idea of doing something so great and glorious that people remember you, And the particular power that dying gloriously has, that was really important in the ancient world and and really until relatively recently. Hmm. You mentioned Socrates, another example of a a, a noble death in ancient history. And there's this idea that Christians were somehow unique in this idea that they have a system of rewards for those who die – you know, for their for their principles. But Socrates, as you said, he died defending his principles, one of them being, you know, this idea that the body is contemptible, that death is a liberation of the soul from the body. And so he figured when he when he died nobly and, you know, courageously that he was he was going to ascend to a to, to a better kind of of afterlife to tell, tell that story. Yeah, so Socrates is really interesting. So he's put on trial in Athens on these trumped-up charges of corrupting the youth and other such things, and he doesn't really give a very good speech of defense. In fact, when they ask him, you've been convicted, what kind of a punishment do you want? He sort of sarcastically suggests to people that they should put him up at the state's expense and pay for his food. So they sentence him to die instead because they're very irritated. And he actually could have run away at that point. He could have escaped. But he chooses to stay because, on principle because he thinks that he's lived in this society. He shouldn't just run away from society's rules. He needs to accept the judgment of his peers. And so there he is in prison talking to his disciples. And some people are there and they're crying. And he tells them, you know, that they should not be upset 
that uh, it will be better to be liberated from this existence and to proceed to whatever kind of afterlife is out there. And in one of the stories about Socrates' death, he says that he imagines that in the hereafter, that he will be sort of philosophizing. He'll be talking to really smart people about the meaning of life. That's sort of heaven for Socrates, being a philosopher. And the very last thing he says before he dies, and sort of last words are really important for martyrs, the last thing he says is um, sort of a joke. He says that they should remember to sacrifice um, a a cock, a sort of male chicken to Asclepius, Asclepius being the god of healing. And what he's saying is you should perform this sacrifice as a thanks offering because I have been healed. I've been allowed to go on to the afterlife. And I think um, for people who are religious and believe in the afterlife, that should make sense. Obviously, heaven will be better than this world in which there's suffering and pain. And Socrates definitely does think that there's an afterlife and that there's a reward for following your principles. And that's something that has really sort of seeped into the Christian consciousness. Hmm. You mentioned that um, the early Christians borrowed or at least were quite heavily influenced by these other traditions. You mentioned Socrates. Uh, you also mentioned the Romans. They, they, I, you, but you also say the Christian, they, they copped the fact that they were influenced by Jewish stories. But they don't like hearing the connection made to Greek or Roman heroes because these were pagan gods we were talking about. And that's dicey territory for Christians, you say. Yeah, um, this is a this is a difficult um, case. On the one hand, so you have Christians using these Greek and Roman and Jewish stories, and in one sense, it's sort of about evangelization. So I'm from England. If someone's gonna uh, talk to me about American football and try and explain it to me. The best way to explain it is to say, well, it's a lot like rugby, but they wear pads and there's this 10-yard rule. Right. That really helps. And so when Christians are explaining about martyrs, sort of couching those stories in the imagery and tone of Greek and Roman and Jewish stories, sort of help them communicate to other people their message. So it was effective for evangelization. At the same time, the realization that sort of they're copying or using these stories is problematic, especially because, um, and this is the case for modern Christians too, the Greek and Roman gods, they're not part of Christian tradition. That's idolatry. And um, not only that, but for modern Christians today, people don't tend to believe in Aphrodite anymore. Mm. So um, it's especially problematic to think that Christians borrowed from the pagans. So borrowing from the Jews is okay because that's part of Christian tradition. Borrowing from the pagans is problematic. One early Christian writer called Justin Martyr could explain this. He had an explanation, and he said that the reason why these stories, these martyrdom stories or these religious stories that sounded a lot like Christianity – were out there in the world is because of the demons. And he said that the demons had sort of sowed these half-truths and lies into the culture in order to confuse and deceive people later on. But the fact of the matter is that Christians did use those stories self-consciously because it was effective and it worked, because they were compelling to their audiences. Candida Moss is with us. Her book is called The Myth of Persecution, How Early Christians Invented a Story of Martyrdom. You can join us, if you like, 801-585-WEST, our email address, radiowest at KUER.org. We need to take a brief break. Back in a moment, you're listening to Radio West on KUER. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, we're talking about what the religion scholar Candida Moss calls Christianity's persecution myth. 
you heard about uh, persecution from time to time in religious stories and on conservative and radio and TV these days. And the professor isn't saying particular Christians weren't persecuted for their beliefs, but that they weren't the only ones and that many of these stories were exaggerated or in some cases invented to create a mindset of us versus them. The book is called The Myth of Persecution, How Early Christians Invented a Story of Martyrdom. And Professor Moss is joining us from uh, from the campus of Notre Dame. I wanted to ask you about – so there's this disclaimer you mentioned and I said it there a moment ago that um, it's true there were accurate martyr stories. Some people were were tortured and executed for unjust reasons. But, but there's this bigger critical question and that is as a group – were the Christians truly persecuted? And that's a more complicated question, I guess. Yeah, there definitely were martyrs, but were Christians, especially very early Christians, say in the first century, were they actually persecuted? And a lot of this depends on your definition of persecution. Mm. But generally, when I talk to students or when I talk to people, when I ask them, well, what do you mean by persecution? They say that they're envisioning Christians being sought out, so people coming into their houses and grabbing them in the night or and then dragging them before judges and executing them. So it's sort of – it's deliberate and it's strategic and they're being targeted because they're Christians, not because they're criminals. And um, if that's your definition of persecution, if that's what you're envisioning, then for the large part of the first three centuries of early Christian history – Christians weren't persecuted. There were a couple of brief periods, the most important one being from 303 to 305, which was the reign of the Emperor Diocletian, who did issue legislation that deliberately targeted Christians. He deliberately sought them out, and uh, Christians were forced either to sacrifice to the Roman emperor or they were executed. So that did happen. But by and large, as a group... Christians have not been continuously persecuted. In fact, sometimes they've been the persecutors. I wonder, um, one of the things you write about, you hear these stories, especially from the time when Christians were under Roman rule. Um, the stories of you know thousands being herded into these amphitheaters like the Colosseum and thrown to the lions or burned alive, you know, tortured. The idea that they were under this constant threat um, – what, what do we know about the reality of, of those stories? Well, we know that Christians weren't executed in the Colosseum at all, and they were never executed in great numbers. And actually, common sense tells you that the Romans just didn't have the technology to kill thousands of people at the same time. Uh, they, they didn't have sort of um, automatic machine guns and bodies are heavy and lifting them and burying them when you can't leave dead bodies in a city was enormously difficult. So what do we know? We know that occasionally Christians were brought before um, Roman judges and sentenced to die. For the first say, 200 years, we're talking about a handful of Christians dying. These were usually uh, Christian leaders who had drawn attention to themselves by saying things that sounded to the Romans like treason or political subversion. But we're talking about very small numbers of people. We're not talking about thousands of people. And no one died in the Colosseum. And it's it's a much smaller problem than the history would lead us to believe. One of the things you write about, of course, is the death of the – the stories, anyway, of the death of the, the apostles of, of Jesus. Um, and these are important to Christians, this idea um, that – there's a truth to Christianity. Explain that. Why, is, why are these stories of the apostles like Peter, and we'll get to that story as we go, but um, why is this important for Christians that they died? Yeah, I think for a lot of Christians, and I heard this when I was growing up, the deaths of the apostles are important because they prove the truth of Jesus's message. So they were there, they knew Jesus, they saw his resurrection, and if they then spread Jesus's message and then died, that's proof that it happened. Because why would the apostles have been willing to die for a person that wasn't really the son of God? 
that wasn't really resurrected from the dead. So that's why it's so important that the apostles sort of bore witness even to death for Jesus. Mm. It's seen as sort of setting a seal on that story. It must be true because they were willing to die for it. Now, um, that's a really powerful idea. And when people hear that, they're like, yeah, that makes sense. Um, I think one problem that was pointed out to me when I was very hot on this idea in graduate school, one problem with this is that we know that people will die for a lot of things because they believe them. And so we see martyrs from all religious traditions. Does that mean that all religious traditions are true? Mm. Um, I don't know. Uh, That's something that you have to sort of think about if you're going to make this kind of argument. And the problem with the deaths of the apostles is that so many of those stories come from so much later. And people can believe that the apostles are martyrs, but they probably shouldn't base their faith in Christianity or their their belief in Jesus just on the idea that the apostles died. What do you make of the story of Peter? Um, You you tell this story in the year 64. He's trying to get out of Rome unnoticed at first, and he's been sentenced to die, and um, well, he's trying to get out first, and but then he goes back, which is that's an important part of the story. He he decides not to run away. He decides to confront that good death again. I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's Peter. He's sort of escaping from Rome. He's on the road, and there are so many paintings of the sea. And it's called the Corvoda story, and um, he meets basically Jesus mm-hmm. coming on the road, going into Rome, and Peter says to him where are you going? And Jesus says, I'm going to be crucified again. And so then Peter has this big aha moment and realizes he has to return and die for Jesus. And um, as I think probably every Catholic grows up hearing the story of how Peter was crucified like Jesus, but how um, he didn't think that he was worthy to die just like Jesus had. So he asked to be crucified upside down. Um, because he didn't think he was worthy of the death that Jesus had died. And what's interesting about that story is where it comes from. So the death of Peter is not in the Bible. It comes from a series of um, martyrdom stories that were constantly written between the 2nd and 6th centuries. In fact, we have over 10 versions of the story. Now, in the original story, Peter is crucified upside down, It's called the Acts of Peter, and it's from the second century, and it was written by a group of Christians that are now deemed heretical. And in this story, when Peter asks to be crucified upside down, he says he wants to be crucified upside down because sin has so corrupted the world that sort of good and evil has been turned on its head, and now evil passes for good and good passes for evil. It's sort of a fairly sophisticated reason for wanting to be executed upside down because he's saying Jesus has set things the right way up and so that's why he's going to be crucified upside down. Mm. The story about Peter wanting to be crucified upside down out of humility comes from hundreds of years later. And this is a sort of Catholic rewriting of the original story, which they didn't like because they thought it was heretical, and a complete reframing of why Peter did this. So they kept the idea that he was crucified upside down, but they changed the reason for this. And ever since then, generations of Christians have grown up with this understanding of the death of Peter that's not historical and that isn't even true to our earliest version of the story. Do we know... Do we even know how he died? I mean, do we have any evidence of how he actually did die? Well, the story about Peter's death comes from about 100 years later. It's not from 64. It's from sometime in the second century. And scholars disagree Hmm. about um, exactly when it was written. But it's written by people who weren't there, um, who lived in Asia Minor, and we can't really say that we know how Peter died. I'm not such a skeptic that I'm going to say, oh, he probably just lived a long life and died happily in his bed, because I think that we would know more about what happened next. We would have other traditions that slipped under the wire. So I think he probably died. He probably died as a political criminal. And um, 
I don't think we know how he died. It's clear that the martyrdom story in the earliest version is sort of a theological statement. It's not a historical report. But the version that we have, that's not accurate. And I think that we have to face the facts that we don't know how Peter died. If you want to believe he's a martyr, then you can go ahead. But you can't say that you know how he died. You know, this is something you you actually put an exclamation point here in this part of the book, (laughs) which one reason to suggest the apostles weren't killed for being Christian is that, and and here's where you put the exclamation point, there were no Christians at the time. In other words, the name didn't exist. And, And you even go further, even the idea of Christians as a, as a group, as a group distinct from the rest of, uh, of Judaism, for example, didn't really exist in the lifetime of the apostles. Yeah, that's right. And this is one of the interesting things. If they die, they're not dying for the name Christian. So Jesus was a Jew. His first followers were Jews. They thought he was the Jewish Messiah. And when you read the New Testament, if you read, say, Paul's letters, Paul never uses the word Christian. Not once. And if you look at the dates of the books that are in the New Testament, what you notice is that it's only those texts that are written in the second century that start to use the name Christian. Um, What does this mean? It seems like for the whole first century until the very end, Christians just thought of themselves as Jews. They call themselves followers of the way. So they're a branch of Judaism that identifies as followers of Jesus, as followers of the way. But they're not Christians yet. And what this means is that the Romans couldn't have targeted Christians because if Christians aren't even calling themselves Christians, how would the Romans even know about them? So if they died as martyrs, say, in that first century, they were Jews who were followers of Jesus who were treated by the Romans as political criminals not as part of some new religious movement. Of course, for Christians, the original martyr was, was Jesus. Um, uh, but of course, and, and this is something you spend some time with and I wanted to just ask about, the, the New Testament suggests, of course, that it wasn't the Romans who were responsible for his death, but the Jews. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and after Jesus, the story, of course, continues. Stephen, the story mm-hmm. that plays out in the Bible, is martyred by by the Jews as the story plays out. Why is this an important part of the story? Yeah, I think this is really interesting and sort of one of those places where history is very helpful. So when Jesus lived and died, Jews were not able to execute anyone for any reason. They had to ask the Romans for permission. So the Romans had to be involved on some level. And when you read the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's always the scribes and the Pharisees who Mm -hmm. are conspiring against Jesus. And when you read the Gospel of John, it's just the Jews who are seeking to target him. But historically, and you can even see this a little bit in the New Testament, it must have been the Romans because it was the Romans who crucified him and it was the Romans who finally sentenced him to die. Now, I'm sure lots of people are thinking, well, what about the Sanhedrin trial? Didn't they try Jesus and condemn him for blasphemy? Well, there's something peculiar about the Sanhedrin trial in that it's meeting at night on a holy day, on Passover of all holy days. And when you read Jewish regulations about when a trial like this can take place, you quickly realize that this makes the trial illegal. Uh, So a lot of historians say that trial didn't take place. Does this mean that there was no involvement by Jewish authorities? No, they clearly would have known who he was. They might have been concerned about him starting a rebellion. But it's pretty clear to historians that it was the Romans who sent Jesus to die. Now, this is a historical reading of Jesus's death. Um, If you want to have a theological reading that says that Jesus dies, not because the Romans thought he was um, a rebel, but because it was necessary for the salvation of the world, then you you can have both of those interpretations. But the historical reason why Jesus died was that the Romans heard this language of him being called king of the Jews. They thought he was a rebel, and the Romans killed rebels. I mean, the Romans would execute someone for very small crimes. So executing Jesus 
at a sensitive period in time around Passover when there are all of these Jews there celebrating liberation from slavery, executing this man who's hailed as king of the Jews would have been nothing to the Romans. This is a something you write a lot about in the book, that w- when Christians appeared, for example, later in Roman courtrooms, they, they weren't, the, the Romans weren't worried about what they believed in terms of their their spiritual ideas, but their political ones, it seems. I mean, they had a reputation, for example, as you, you say in the book, for being socially reclusive, for refusing to swear oaths, that they were overly superstitious. Uh, they could be rude. They could be disrespectful. They could be subversive. That's why they were killed, not, not necessarily because they believed in this spiritual principle. Yeah, I think that's right. And I should preface this by saying um, I'm not in favor of the death penalty, but you have to bear in mind what was happening at the time. The Romans executed people just for being stubborn, for example. So when Christians were in courtrooms, they were stubborn. So we have lots of stories in which Roman judges say, what's your name? And the Christian will say, well, I'm a Christian. And they'll say, well, where are you from? And they'll say, I'm a Christian. They're just not answering the question. And then they start talking about how they have this king who's actually emperor of the entire world, who's going to come back and take over. And that sounds to a Roman judge like they're expecting a rebellion or a revolution or something. And the Christians never took time to explain to the Romans why they think things or why they're doing them. They were also secretive. They wouldn't swear oaths. And not swearing an oath in the ancient world was sort of like refusing to give someone your social security number. You can't really engage in business if you don't. And so they were very sort of, to the Romans at least, backward. They were backward. They also sometimes would say things like, um, I'm a slave and I've been freed by Christ. Now, to us, that might sound a lot like something that St. Paul would say in his letters. But to a Roman judge, a slave saying that they have freed themselves from slavery because of this new religion they've joined, the Romans, not only are they going to execute what seems to be a runaway slave, but they're also going to be concerned about this superstitious religious movement that appears to be sort of dismantling the fabric of society. And that's very threatening to the Romans. And so purely as political and religious, not religious, political and social subversives, to a Roman judge, they deserve to die. They were threatening the stability of the Roman Empire. Candida Moss is with us. Her book is called The Myth of Persecution, How Early Christians Invented a Story of Martyrdom. You can join us, 801-585-WEST, our email address, radiowest at KUER.org. We'll take another break. Back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West on KUER. This is Radio West and Doug Fabrizio, back now with Professor Candida Moss. We're talking about her book, The Myth of Persecution, How Early Christians Invented a Story of Martyrdom. Here's an email which raises a a good question, Professor. Uh, This person says they're impressed by the scholarship of a lot of modern historians, but uh, this person says, I wonder how well received are these views at the Catholic university where you teach? Which is a good question. How are people there at Notre Dame taking this idea that challenges some of these ideas about Christian martyrdom? I think um, the diplomatic way to answer that would be to say uh, it's a mixed reception. <laughs> um, I think that you know these martyrs, the history of Valley Christianity, is particularly important um, to Catholics. So there's a lot invested here in this idea of persecution and martyrdom, and Catholics think a lot about it. So I understand that the stakes are high, and I think it depends on your perspective. I don't think that anything I've written in Myth of Persecution should cause anyone from any denomination of Christianity to sort of lose faith. 
hopefully it will um, help people use more nuance in their language and speak more accurately about their history and tradition. And I think that would be a good thing. Being accurate would be a good thing. Being sensitive would be a good thing. But um, obviously, uh, some people feel differently <laughs> and think that even if the things I say are true, it would be better not to say them. Yeah. <laughs> so it's been a mixed reception. Yeah. But I understand that the stakes are high for my colleagues and my uh, fellow Catholics. Yeah. Uh, here's a question that was raised by a listener, Carl. Um, you don't write about this in the book, so it may be unfair to ask you, but but how much have you thought about the where the Mormon story fits in this in this larger theme? I mean, the, the Mormons were very, very literally persecuted in the early days mm-hmm. of, of that faith. They they reflect on that experience often, and of course, Mormons have their own martyr. Joseph Smith mm-hmm. was murdered, and most active, you know, engaged Mormons don't say he was assassinated or killed. They call it the martyrdom. Where, where does this fit? Yeah, I think that the death of Joseph Smith is is really interesting example of modern martyrdom. And I think, you know, here he is imprisoned in Carthage and a mob comes and attacks him and his companions and depending on the various different accounts of that event but some of them describe Joseph Smith as sort of drawing attention to himself to allow his companions to escape which would also be a a great act of self-sacrifice on his part Mm. and a lot of people don't know this but Joseph Smith actually read uh, Fox's Book of the Martyrs which was a early modern Protestant story that took all of the stories from the early church and added on the story of Protestant martyrs uh, during the reign of Queen Mary of England, a sort of a history of martyrs. And Joseph Smith remarked that um, he thought that these were true Christians, these martyrs from the early church and uh, from the early modern period. So it's mm-hmm. possible that he himself was actually influenced by this idea. I think that when Mormons talk about persecution, they're actually a really interesting example of how persecution rhetoric can play out in a religious group's identity, mm-hmm. but also how groups that are truly marginalized seek to explain themselves to the world. So Mormons have been persecuted. They have also on occasion been the aggressors and uh, persecuted others. Uh, but they have definitely suffered periodic persecution. And I think it's safe to say are in wider society still discriminated against to this day. And what's interesting about this is, even though Mormons are discriminated against, they still um, they still make the effort uh, to explain themselves to the world. I think we can see that in the handling of the Salt Lake City Olympics. Mm. We can see that in Mitt Romney's run for president of the United States. They seek to explain misunderstandings. They seek to educate the world about who they are. There are a lot of sort of scurrilous rumors about Mormons, and Mormons sort of patiently seek to um, dismantle those rumors. Mm. And I think what's interesting about that is is you can place that in contrast to, say, the rhetoric of Fox News and representatives of other Christian groups, mine, my own included, in which they just say, we're being persecuted, just like the early church. And there's a war against Christians in this country, which is a sign that actually you're in a position of power when you don't have to explain to anyone else why you feel the way that you do. That's a sign that you're probably the dominant group. And so I think it's really interesting to put, uh, you have Mormons who, um, as a Christian group, are heirs to this idea of persecution, just like other Christian denominations are. But Mormons are still seeking to explain themselves. Mm. And Mm. they don't necessarily put out into the wider world this idea, even though they... Um, idealized Joseph Smith, they don't put out into the world this idea that we're just being persecuted and you're persecutors and you're with Satan. Instead, they do seek to explain themselves. And that's something that I'd like to encourage people to do in my book. Mm. So I think that's a good thing. Well, that let, that gets us to, I think, I, that point where you, you, you come to this idea that um, it's time to sort of find, you know, ditch these conspiratorial assumptions, you say, and instead... Raise this question, how Christians would fare differently without that narrative of of persecution? What what would the Christian story be like if they didn't have to go back to these stories of 
of of martyrs. Um, what, what do you think? How would we would it be different? Because this seems an important idea. Is that's not the essential part of Christ's message, f- for for example. Talk about that. Yeah, and I think this is this is the central problem and why I wrote the book. I didn't just want to say, "Ha ha, you're wrong about history." Um, I think the problem here is when disagreement and dissent are conflated with persecution, then dialogue and collaboration and even compassion become really impossible because you can't reason with a persecutor. You have to fight them. You have to resist. And once we've made persecution into this kind of badge of honor and sign of moral superiority, then there's not a real reason to try and persuade others of our arguments. And so once once we start to frame the entire world by this myth of persecution, then dialogue's not only impossible, it's actually undesirable because being persecuted is good. So you don't really want to persuade people. And I think the real problem is it overshadows actual persecution. So Christians around the world do endure violence and oppression today. And those experiences are overshadowed by sort of local complaints that conflate disputes over lawmaking with persecution. And so I think if we don't reserve persecution language for situations of actual persecution, then unspeakable violence becomes indescribable because it gets lost. Mm. Well, you begin the book with the story of, of Coptic Christians contemporary Coptic Christians being being killed in Egypt. Yeah. Um, those Christians, uh, Christians do die in Egypt and in Syria, and they need our help. Um, but sometimes, and even in those countries, when people sort of rally to the persecution battle cry, it can actually foster more violence. So you can see this in India, for example, where religious violence between Hindus and Muslims begins. It spirals out of control. So you'll have, and any any violence is bad, but if you'll have, what you'll see is a small group of people will be attacked and maybe one person will die, maybe not. But then the other group will retaliate and greater and greater numbers of people are being killed because each group feels rightly mm. that they're under attack. And what we really need to try and get towards, and I don't say this lightly as if it's easy to do, but collaboration and dialogue, paying attention to Christians in Egypt and Syria and elsewhere, who, and I would say, members of any religious group that's being oppressed. We need to pay attention to that and try and foster dialogue and persuade people rather than just jumping to language of persecution. You write about how uh, where this um, this myth of persecution, where it sort of comes from, a lot of it comes from the writers who came after the reign of Constantine. You, you talk about the stories that they created, that, that a holy person who was prepared to die in defense of Christ, you know, had authority in the eyes of readers. You know, no bigger authority than a saint, as you, as you put it in the book. And I wonder, um, is this where, at least from your perspective, in some ways, Christianity began to diverge from this um, idea that you get from Jesus about love and compassion to something a little bit more vengeful or aggressive. Yeah, I do think that there's something different happens in the fourth century. So we have these martyrdom stories, but how do we get from some isolated martyrdom stories and people who are genuinely marginalized to this idea of a church under attack? And it's actually once the Christians are in power that we start to get this. And so we start to see Christian historians using these martyrdom stories to say the church is always under attack, be it by the Romans or the Jews or the heretics. And that's where this becomes very powerful for those in in leadership positions because what they can do is they can take a martyr and they can say, well, this martyr, he actually denounced the heretics, so you should denounce them too. It's sort of like sports advertising. Mm. You take your favorite athlete and they endorse a brand of soda and then people want to drink the soda. Um, Except now you're using martyrs to endorse a brand of Christianity. So it very quickly goes from uh, this sort of uh, cluster of stories about Christian martyrs and sort of inspiring people to love Jesus and follow him to using this idea about continuous persecution 
to silence dissent in the church. So if you disagree with me, it's because you're a heretic. And if you're a heretic, you're as good as a persecutor. Mm. So that it becomes very powerful rhetoric that can be used to silence dissent and disagreement in the church. And that's where we really get this myth of persecution, not from the earliest days of the church, but from those who lived after Constantine. I'll come back to that question you raise in, in the book of how it is that Christians could or would fare differently without this narrative of persecution, because you talk about giving up that binary view. Are you seeing it happen in some Christians? Is it, is it possible? Are, are you seeing a, a way, you know, a, a movement away from that? Yeah, I, I think that we can put this aside. And some people have said to me, you're being unrealistic. We're just too polarized. But I actually have personally experienced this since writing the book. So I get a lot of hate mail. And one woman emailed me and she said, you're a female Judas Iscariot. How could you say this about the church? You're a terrible person. And I always try to answer the emails I get. So I wrote back and I said, I'm really sorry you feel this way. I don't think I'm a female Judas Iscariot. Here's what I'm arguing in the book. And if you read it and you have questions, please feel free to write back. And she wrote back immediately. and She said, I'm sorry. That was probably a little strong. Maybe I'll get back to you. Right. And I got an email from her five months later. She said, you probably won't remember me, but I read your book. And I realized it wasn't as bad as I thought. And um, I'm sorry for the things I said. And, uh, you know, I think maybe you're right about this, putting aside dialogue, putting aside persecution language and fostering dialogue. And I was struck by how gracious of her to write to me and also that she had been so angry with me that she was prepared to look up my email address and send me an email accusing me of being like Judas. But she was able to come back to a place of dialogue and... um, and sort of collaboration and mutual discussion from sort of a shared place of, of goodness, I think. And that, to me, is where I think we can get. I mean, I think that that was really heartwarming for me. And I think that if we put aside this persecution language, I don't think that she and I see eye to eye on everything. But I think that if we put aside persecution language, we can have real discussions where we can legitimately and clearly disagree with one another without resorting to demonizing other people. Professor Candida Moss, she's a professor of New Testament and early Christianity at the University of Notre Dame. Her book is The Myth of Persecution, How Early Christians Invented a Story of Martyrdom. It comes out in paperback later uh, this month. Professor, thanks very much for the time. Thank you very much for having me. Radio West production of KUER News. A uh, special note of thanks to Taylor Almond. A welcome to our summer intern, Michael Shea. Technical direction from Mike Anderson. The show produced by Benjamin Bombard and Elaine Clark. I'm Doug Fabrizio. <laughs>